Welcome to Feeding the Movement, a podcast by the Network for Edwork. The Network for Edwork is Taft's team that supports the retention and development of teachers and leaders of color. We want and work to ensure that teachers and educational leaders of color come into and stay in the work of liberation within themselves and in our education system. Every other month, we make a space that allows for us to share more about the Network for Edwork and our aspirations and a way to have the Network for Edwork community to connect. This three-day introductory series was recorded at the annual Fellows Summit in August and featured speakers and conversations that illustrated liberation pedagogy as a framework to disrupt oppressive systems in education. I am one of your hosts, Sara Kamal, and I am joined by Dr. Raydel Canny, and we are the Network for Edwork. So liberation pedagogy is a framework that includes both like a theory and a practice for how to live, lead, teach, liberated. As a theory, um, it helps us to think about how do we recognize colonizing undo them, replace them with more, replace them with more um, liberated behaviors, and then bring others along on that on that journey. And then as a practice, it's really thinking about what are the tools and behaviors and examples and conversations and things that we actually need to do and dig into in order to get us there to moving towards liberation. How it came about was in grad school, when I was in grad school, um, I learned from experience um, without meaning to really that in order to digest me, I was kind of pushing against the grain. Um, and through learning that and going through that process, I scholarship experience who I am. They were not a part of the status quo, and that was a really big surprise to me when I went to grad school. And so through doing that, I ended up reading a bunch of scholarship about what it is to be colonized and the fact that we all have colonized, internalized colonized behaviors. Um, it's including us as people of color. And that was really an eye-opening thing for me. And then as I continued in my work in working with teachers and then now working with leaders, uh, found that it is helpful to be able to have a framework that helps us as teachers, leaders, and educators think about what we need to do and taking care of ourselves while also trying to help our students, trying to lead others, trying to work with peers. Uh, around this work of um, decolonizing systems and things in education that are oppressive to, to the people of color. So I'm thinking about the context of TAF and how the fellowship has uh, such a di diversity of experience. Um, we have teachers, we have leaders, we have people from a variety of backgrounds um, and being able to speak to all of those and also speak to the needs of students um, to find ways to pull together things that are already out there and exist um, but put them together in this context and say, this is the path that we're going to use moving forward for the Network for Edward that pulls both the Martinez Fellowship and the Leaders of Color programming together. Yeah. So that is the what and why and how Liberation Pedagogy came about. So, Sara, now I want to ask you, yes. why do you think that Liberation Pedagogy was the best framework, a good framework for the Network for Edward? We did talk about this a lot. Um, I think that the main thing um, that was taken into consideration for the fellowship was just, I think, the universal nature of the constructs that are defined within liberation pedagogy. Those constructs are unifying across our demographics because 
it's all in this effort to dismantle oppressive systems that are in place, meaning that anyone can be connected to its mission um, because it is inclusive for doing the work for people of color and white folks as well who also need to be in this work. So if a fellow, for example, didn't necessarily see someone who looks like them in the literature, there was still that connection point to the fact that it makes room for that self-work and engaging others along this journey towards liberation. So, and including our peers and ultimately including our students and supporting them in that mission. So, you know, bringing their best, most authentic selves into the classrooms is, I think, strengthened by the overarching missions of the goal of liberation pedagogy. So that is kind of why we chose it at that best framework. Um, but that's just me speaking for the fellowship and helping a little bit in that ideation. But why do you, how would you define it? Yes, I agree with all of those. And because part of my job is to also think more broadly, right? So I think also one of the goals of liberation pedagogy is to think about how we both um, dismantle systems that uphold um, and make a certain way of being supremacists um, and also then decenter. And because that is currently whiteness, that is what we are trying to dismantle and, dis and decenter, right? Um, so if we think of humanity as this, Kind of circle and in the middle of the circle is whiteness you know what is uh deemed to be normal and uh you know what we are striving towards and trying to be and that's what is told to us um but not only is it centered it is also kind of up on this pedestal lifted up by structures policies mindsets beliefs and history that kind of place it up here so i think of liberation pedagogy and then us as people of color right be kind of being out here in the margin and so I think that liberation pedagogy also tries to say, um, how do we knock down these structures in education that uphold any particular way of being, but in this case, whiteness, right? And then how do we think about having a movable center where the center is not focused on one thing because that is a very um, white supremacist way of thinking. Okay, so we wanted to be able to do that because as the sort of, uh, cultivators of liberation pedagogy <laughs> within TAF. We haven't really had the opportunity to just kind of say from our perspective, like what it is and why we came up with it and you know what we're trying to do with it. So hopefully that was helpful and a little bit insightful. But now we are going to officially welcome our guests. <laughs> I feel like we all know each other now. I feel like this Cooper is the sixth time we yeah. welcomed them <laughs> now. The sixth time. Bless you guys. <laughs> um, so we have today joining us a wonderful, patient um, group of leaders of color. Uh, we have Jerome Hunter, who is the founder of the Seattle School for Boys and is also an OG fellow from cohort four. We have Trevor Green, who is the superintendent of Yakima Schools. We have Dr. Teddy Bean Conroy, who is the, this is about to be a mouthful, the director of the elementary teacher education program at the University of Washington, Seattle. All that, all of that. And then we have our <laughs> co-founder and executive director of TAF, Trish Milan-Sedito. So I saw them all waving as we were introducing. <laughs> You're gonna get to talk in just a moment because um, we have a, a special way that we want you to introduce yourselves. Yes, so 
The name of this podcast is Feeding the Movement and Nourishing Ourselves Holistically. Um, our guests will be, you know, obviously sharing their amazing insights that nourish our minds and our spirits as educators, but we also want to get to know them a little more real um, in terms of who they are beyond their titles. So obviously a podcast about that's called Feeding the Movement is going to be about food for this first question. All right. So the first question that each of our esteemed panelists will answer for us is, and I'll add a little more context afterward and give you guys time to think. So what is a meal that brings you that sense of comfort and home, right? So because food in the POC community is an expression of love, it is an expression of how we feel about ourselves, and it's an expression of how we show our affection and our love to others, right? Cooking a meal together, recipes passed down as lineage of our heritage and our families. Um, and also the fact that we show how much we love you through our food. Like you can't not go to a POC's house and not leave busting at the seams with food, right? Okay, so food is this resiliency of our culture. So taking all of that into consideration, all of it, what is that meal for you that brings you that sense of comfort and that sense of home? I guess I'll start. Um, the, it's more of a style. So my dad was from Shreveport, Louisiana. So anytime that I can um, sit down and have uh, a dish, a uh, soul food, um, cornbread, beans are something that really center me it kind of brings me back to my childhood um and it connects me to my lineage and so um when i think of food that um really has not only nour like nourishment substance but emotional substance uh soul food is what it is for me thank you who's next teddy Girl, you gotta unmute yourself. There we go. Mute myself, right. Okay, so it doesn't have to be a real meal, right? I can like put together pieces of things because I'm with the cornbread. Yes. But also there's this soup that I think my aunt invented that, um, and we just call it kale soup, you know? <laughs> but I make it, my sister makes it, now all of our kids make it. It's kale and potatoes and kidney beans and the hottest sausage you can find. Um, it's and, and onions and it's just good. And um, so we make that as a family. Um, and then our kids make it. It's, it's the one thing my sister and I agree that all of our kids will actually eat. <laughs> and nobody complains <laughs> that you know they don't like this piece or they don't like that piece um but then we have to have dessert and that would be our um, sweet potato pie and we have a sweet potato pie recipe that allegedly and i'm just going to take it on 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 uh on uh on on, on their word that this was the recipe that mary mcleod bethune used when she would bake pies to keep the doors open on her school. Wow. So, I mean, it's not like brown and tattered around the edges. It's actually a printed out recipe, but that's what we use. <laughs> I 
Oh, 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 wait a minute. We need a side of bourbon, and that bourbon has to be Jim Beam. <laughs> okay. We must have bourbon. We must have bourbon. I put it in the ledger somewhere. There must be bourbon. Okay. <laughs> All right. Oh, thank you for sharing, Teddy and Jerome. Who's next? We got uh, Trevor or Trish? I guess I'll go ahead, uh, save Trish for last. Uh, thank you. Uh, and I appreciate this unique way of introducing ourselves and uh, kind of giving a window into who we are. Uh, very creative and uh, knowing that food is uh, nostalgic and it takes me back and you know, thinking about uh, growing up on the Yakima Indian Reservation. I myself am Muskogee Creek uh, out of Oklahoma, but I was displaced and uh, raised on the Yakima Reservation. So of course for me, uh, nothing uh, speaks to me like uh, fry bread. And when you're talking about uh, a full meal, it would be a, kind of a Navajo taco type uh, preparation. And it's also one of the things that my father, uh, only things that he would prepare for the family. So he was not uh, a, a person that cooked a lot, uh, but when he did, he would turn the entire kitchen upside down and it would take uh, <laughs> around two days to clean up. Yeah. Be, uh, a memorable meal. And it just takes me back to that time where uh, we were in this communal feel and coming together around something that uh, not only family, but food. So thank you for that opportunity. Yes, that's what we want. So um, I was thinking about the food that I grew up with and uh, I'm a vegetarian now, have been since 1977, but I try to make the same foods um, with a vegetarian twist. Uh, so collard greens, you know, sands the um, salt pork and fat back. Uh, and um, mac and cheese, only with extra sharp cheese. Uh, I make everything old fashioned, so I can't think about calories or health or anything like that. Uh, cornbread, sweet potato pie. But more recently, um, our family has really taken to Ethiopian food. So really, um, you know, sitting around and making days of Ethiopian food so that we can all have some leftovers and. Uh, and I can make my mom's pie. I can't make her cake, but I can make her apple pie and her sweet potato pie. Mm -hmm. In our practice sessions, we had an epic debate about whether or not pie or cake was the better dessert. It was, people had a lot of feelings about it. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> they had a lot of strong feelings about this particular topic. Yes, um, and I agree, calories do not count when it comes to comfort food. Nope. Mm -hmm. no <laughs> So as basically all of you alluded to when you were responding to the question, <laughs> right, this, uh, we didn't want to just have you just say your name, your role, right? We are all about community and the importance of having this particular community um, in the work that we do. So now that we know a little bit more about you through ways that you feed and nourish yourselves um, when it comes to uh, the meals that make you feel like home, um, we are going to get into it mm -hmm. and hopefully we're feeling, you know, a little bit comfortable with each other. People are popping things in the chat. They're connecting <laughs> as well. Um, and so now we're going to get into some uh, tough questions um, and hear your, from your experience and wisdom as leaders and people who have been in this work for a little bit of time but then also a couple of us who have not been this, in this work for that long, um, but just hear your wisdom around liberation and working with students and being in education. So here we go. 
First question, as whatever your role is, what are some of the specific ways that you see the impact of colonization on your own mindsets and behaviors, and then on the mindsets and behavior of those that you lead and work with? And this is a question for everyone. So anyone, when you feel led to start speaking, start speaking. <laughs> okay, I'm happy to go first. Um, you know, I started thinking about, um, first I started going back to how I grew up, but then I wanted to be a little more recent, a little more relevant. Um, I thought about when TAP was just getting into every form and how everything was about test scores. Everything was about um, measurement and data, 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 data. And, you know, getting to that point and feeding into that and, and buying into that whole thing, thinking that that was the right way to go. And of course, I know, you know, it took less than a year to know better. Uh, first of all, Ed Reform is led by white people and white people have defined the problem and they've defined the solution and their solution is our kids need to pass tests. You know, and, and originally, you know, our team got into that because we were trying to move TAP into Ed Reform. And then as we learned better and knew better, we're like, this is ridiculous. Let's uh, set our own measures of success. Um, that's more important uh, to our children. Yeah, they need to learn to read and write, but the way you assess them, the way you approach them um, by labeling them the moment they fail something is not the right way to go. Um, and then I'll just sort of loop that into the whole idea of um, measures of progress and how we're trying to fight those things. I still struggle with how do we show measures of progress that will satisfy white people because white people are the ones who are writing the checks. Yeah. Right? So it's, you know, how do we make that happen? So that is constantly in my brain. Um, and, you know, there are a number of things, but I'll let some other people go. Yes. Yeah, I guess for me, very similar to that because it, it's rewriting what are the accepted expectations and the rules and pushing back and saying, why can't we? Um, when I was in my own classroom, I could do that within my own four walls yeah. to the extent that, you know, and I taught up until the, t the very beginnings of that, that testing craze, the last 10 years of my life in a, in a classroom, and then the next 14 years in a district were all about test scores. Um, but I, I, you know, I like to call it guerrilla thinking in a way too, because ironically, I ended up uh, working in gifted and talented education for a long time and I came at it from an equity perspective that that program was almost completely white and how do we have this in a district that's majority POC mm -hmm. so um, you know it, this is where I guess I learned to read the manuals and to read the the law and to get find ways to eke in um, that way but but that's still not dismantling the system. Mm -hmm. And it's, but it's asking, you know, that, that taught me how to ask why not. Um, and so in my current role, you know, why are we, why do we have everybody doing all their work in English? Why not? 
invite people to hand in their coursework in any language they want to. Um, if, if we are truly going to value the linguistic uh, repertoire and the richness that we say we have in our community, why not do it that way? Just because it's all, because the university is an English medium, re, and that's a proxy for whiteness. Um, that's a language that's been imposed on most of us. You know, not, not to say that there aren't other colonial languages, but um, why not? And um, why not have, why is it important that we have to have this deadline? Um, why not be aware of people's life circumstances? Um, and, and so I, that's what I'm learning. I'm, I'm learning to push back on the why nots and seeing how that can blossom sometimes. It's, a, it's work and, and, and I'm still growing. You know, we have a student um, who's coming back to us who, uh, and I need to ask my why nots about why, why not do something different? Why are we expecting the same things as this student who has physical limitations that we're asking of other people? Why not do something different? Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to kind of add on to Teddy's inquiry that I, that's where it left me um, after years of teaching uh, curricula that was Eurocentric um, it wasn't diverse um, the methodologies of what was the appropriate way to teach was also um, uh, supportive of our white students um, in addition to that this, some of the schools that I um, taught at had HC programs, and those HC programs were not reflective of um, the student population where um, these uh, programs are more or less, well, they're more um, catered to uh, white students, and they overlook the dynamic ability of our um, students of color and their um, methods of learning. And so it also left me um, asking the question, um, why is it that um, it's necessary to teach in a way that is standardized and it's um, you know focused around the standards of the powerful, um, which are the you know the colonizers. And so um, I think that through the work, it's left me to, um, you know, question the assessments, the, the models of how we uh, conduct our work as educators, but also um, finding ways to um, work collaboratively to dismantle um, systems of oppression. And, you know, if you're in the building, starting with asking these questions to folks in power, the administrators and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. I so appreciate uh, the insight of, uh, of my colleagues and to be on this uh, panel with them is truly an honor. I, I think of uh, Trisha's comments about uh, uh, standardized test scores and, and you know, me being uh, in a role of a superintendent in a district of 80% uh, Latinx population in the 70th, 70th percentile of uh, uh, in poverty. 
really, you know, makes me analyze uh, this question about how, how does, you know, what is the impact of colonization? And I, I see it everywhere. And I see it in the test scores. I see it in the way that uh, people are treated. And for me to be in this position is such an honor because I do remember being a paraeducator. I do remember uh, being a teacher and the impact that I could make in that classroom setting and then going on to the uh, principal level and, and knowing that I could have that same type of effect. It was really interesting though to, to, to reflect on the dynamics of the interactions with, with colleagues and knowing that uh, the state of education is a predominantly uh, white profession uh, and how does that then interact with our students, uh, students of color. So you know, being a native male, knowing that I went through the entire K-12 system without ever seeing somebody that looked like me and those years were spent, you know, informative years on the reservation itself in the Yakima area. And that, that's, not, that's not something that, uh, uh, I know that it affected me greatly and it affected many of my, of my peers in seeing where, where they ended up and what they saw and valued in education. But also thinking about that uh, indigenous model of community is so important for me and to take to my leadership because that is in direct contrast, I believe, to the uh, white style of, of leadership. So mm. I grew up uh, really growing, connecting the community interest in our leadership. And, and when I contrast that with the colonization aspect, it's, it's all about moving ahead, of getting ahead, of achieving and achieving uh, personally. And so I, 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 I think about that aspect of leadership itself specifically, and I find myself uh, constantly trying to put myself in check and to remember who I am. So for me, it's so important to know my history, uh, where I came from, who I represent in everything that I do, because it becomes very easy to get caught up in these aspects of of numbers and data and all of these other things that uh, can take us away from that connectivity in that individual connectivity, not internet connectivity, but in that relationship piece and truly understanding those that we serve. So when I, when I think about the impact of colonization, I, I feel really blessed, very blessed to be in this position now where I impact an entire organization through my approach and style of leadership that is in contrast to what is predicated in the uh, dominant culture aspect. Um, I have a question for you. Um, so uh, you're like the ultimate leader in your district, right? So what would happen or what do you think would happen if you decided that none of the kids in your district will take the state test mm -hmm. and that you would develop a different set of um, assessments for uh, learning that are more performative, more, um, yeah, that are, are based off of multiple ways um, to assess how kids learn, realizing that that would take a long time to do. But, you know, what do you think would happen if you started taking those steps? Wow, that is such a, such a great question. It really pushes uh, me to consider the position that I am in. And you know, I have just I just finished my first year as a superintendent, so I'm starting year two. Obviously, worldwide pandemic took us out on in March uh, of what we were doing, and that really turned uh, it really turned it created a great opportunity. There's a quote that says, "You know, never waste a crisis, a good crisis," and this is a terrible thing that our our families and our community is going through, especially in a place 
where over 70% of our workers are considered essential. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's impacting our community greatly, but the opportunity to shift things and to move to like, for example, um, you know, as the ultimate leader, and I appreciate that, but that's such a misnomer, Trish, uh, as, the, as a leader of the district, it was, it was gratifying to be able to make a decision and say, we're going to go to one-to-one -one devices, which wasn't even on the horizon for the Yakima School District, and it's incorrigible that we weren't there. To say that we are going to come up with internet for our entire community right you know, before school starts, and it's, we're not going to wait for the state. We're not going to wait for OSBI. We're not going to wait for some savior to come in and figure out a way to do this. We're going to make sure that it happens internally. So you know, those decisions can be made, and I, I almost feel challenged. I do feel challenged uh, by that statement because I don't think that the world would cave in if we made that decision. Uh, I feel like I have some, I have, uh, you know, you always have to weigh political capital coming in, but we have done some tremendous things this year, and I, I believe that we could move in that direction, and I don't think it would take as long as, as we might think uh, it would take, given the circumstances that we're in, because you know, I, I never fail to point out, point out to, my, to my board right now, I've been here one year and got rid of state testing. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's see what we can do in year two. So, you know, with that off the table currently, yes. we're seeing that there is another way. So the, the, the thing, and, and Trish, thank you so much for this question that I worry about, is I compare what we're going through to that kind of elasticity of a rubber band. We have now extended ourselves into a new, a new shape, a new way of being that we're trying to determine and figure out. My, my fear is if we don't put the pegs in place, to stretch in the ways that we want it to be stretched, it's going to come back into that same that same uh, 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 shape as, as before, which is what we've always done. And we cannot afford to have that happen for our students. So this is a tremendous opportunity to then move forward and make those changes. And I really appreciate the thinking that you're now engaging, engaging me in is what can we get rid of? What can we replace that with that is, is culturally important for our, for our community. Thank you, Trish. Uh, do you all see what's happening just after the first question? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and, and I want to, I, I, we got rid of state testing. Almost everybody got rid of that standardized testing nationwide, and the world did not end. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be done, and it is an opportunity. And I think we ought to take advantage of the fact that most of us are opening up virtually and saying, we aren't prepared to continue this year either. Mm -hmm. And so we begin mm -hmm. to be able to visualize and, and imagine, because yeah. there are so many people out there who don't remember what it used to look like. I mean, the yeah. folks who put people on the moon did not take the standardized, it didn't do common core, okay? Right. We used to know how to do this. And um, if we give space to figure that out, to, to help people see that it is indeed possible and to blow the mask of accountability off of this whole system of testing that has grown up to rank people, to sort people, which is exactly colonist in its, in its uh, uh, inception and in its, in its way of, of thinking about people as commodities. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, this yeah. is a 
Yeah. We worked so hard to get all the, make sure all of you were in here because yes. we to be able to hear all your voices. So I want to jump in though, and I want to ask a follow-up question to my original question because you all have so much wisdom and experience. And in your answers, your responses to that question, I feel like you spoke from this place of like, here is what I would like to happen in terms of decolonization or like here is what, here are some things that have happened. And I wanna, I'd wanna, I'm gonna ask you to think about, can you think back to like when you were first starting in the game, when you were first a teacher or first whatever it is that you were when you kind of entered into education or even just the working world. Um, and what were some of the, the things that you were carrying with you that now over the years, you're now in a place where you recognize like, oh, I was kind of conforming. Oh, I adapted these colonizing behaviors and mindsets. Because I think it would be really helpful for um, our newer teachers to really kind of, um, you know, have some examples of things to think about of like, as I'm going into my classroom, as I'm going into teaching, as I'm just starting out, um, these are some of the ways that I might be um, sort of just adhering to colonizing behaviors without really realizing. So are there any things that you can think of back to like when you first started in education, when you were first teaching way, way back then or not so way back then, what, you know, how were you back then and compared to, you know, how you are now? I remember when I first started, there was a, a buzz phrase called data driven teaching. And um, that was a reflection, I thought, of um, this is after after experience, but that was a reflection of meritocracy and white supremacy. And a lot of times when um, we would meet as professional learning communities, the data would kind of drive our decisions and we'd lose sight of the fact that humans are behind these numbers and we need to really take a look at how we go about teaching with intention. Um, but, you know, attached to that data were um, methodologies that were narrow, um, didn't serve students, but only the, the, the um, students who were, uh, considered to be exceptional, which were also in line with some of the um, students who are white students. And so um, that kind of threw me off, you know? And so um, we'd had some discussions around um, language arts and um, there was some pushback around, you know, teaching classics. If you take a look at what's deemed a classic, it's all, you know, white literature from white um, authors, white protagonists. And so, um, I, unknowing as a young teacher, didn't realize that I was actually perpetuating some of these um, systemic, systemic forms of oppression. Um, and it wasn't until um, later on in my career um, in understanding that, um, just understanding more about um, systems of oppression in, in education that I had to kind of break away, you know, and so, um, but it took a lot of collaboration. It took a lot of um, coordination with uh, fellowship too, and, and, and being able to ask these questions, have these, um, what we call courageous conversations around um, white supremacy, essentially. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to beat this uh, standardized testing horse a little bit harder. Yeah. Um, a little bit longer because I, I go, when you say way back, it is way back because I go way back before the, the era of No Child Left Behind. 
Um, and even before No Child Left Behind, I was teaching seven or eight years in the state of Texas, which is the birthplace of No Child Left Behind. That's where George Bush didn't come up with this on his own. We'd already been doing it in Texas. But um, I, I believed the hype about testing and that testing really did measure people and measure abilities. Mm. And um, I wish I had known then about the history of standardized testing in this country, mm -hmm. how it was used originally to marginalize immigrants, folks of color, people mm -hmm. whose first language was not English or people who were not proficient English speakers and how it was taken from a, a, a perspective that it wasn't intended to be used for and that was became the purpose. And um, I wish I had known then, that, for example, when um, the, in Texas, when they make, launched a successful lawsuit showing that the um, developers of the Taz threw out questions that Latino students, Latinx students did well on and kept mm -hmm. questions that white students did well on. The court found in their favor and said, yes, there is discrimination, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Um, I wish I had known those things because I would not have put my faith in those measures as telling me something that I needed to know about my students. Yes, exactly why the kind of the first part of the cycle of liberation mm -hmm. pedagogy is recognizing, right? Mm -hmm. There's so much that we often don't recognize about what we have internalized and I feel like no matter how old you get, no matter how long you've been in the game, you start, you, you realize how much you don't know. The more you know, the more you realize how much you didn't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'd like to answer if I could. Absolutely. Uh, I, again, I appreciate the comments uh, previously. I, I totally agree and, and, and with the things that I, I bought into early on. Uh, but I also want to commend the people that are here and going into the profession and here to make a difference. And I think that the error that I made early on was, was buying, buying into the system that was there, uh, that existed and, and not coming in ready to uh, kind of experience discomfort in a way that it needed to be experienced. And it, it took me far too long to get to the point where I was able to speak my truth. And I think you go into a, a setting and it's, it's this hesitancy to, uh, to, to make an impact or in a way beyond your classroom uh, or beyond uh, your, 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 your smaller circle. And we need people that are coming in ready to make a difference and are not uh, going to sit in the back of the kind of the room to observe what's happening, but are outspoken. And again, speaking, you know, speak your truth. And the other, uh, you know, I think about is, Kind of one of those racial equity detours uh, of of trying to move at a at a pace that is uh, for privilege and not for change, and I think you you have the tendency there is an uh, uh, you may you may even see this at times where we could move much quicker much faster as an organization, but we slow down to bring people along, and the people mm -hmm. bringing along are the people in privilege to not feel uncomfortable about the change 
that yeah. is happening. And that is what we have to fight and make sure that tension is, is much, much tighter and, and, and pulling forward and moving uh, at a quicker pace because the people that suffer are those that we profess that we're there to serve. And I, I think about those opportunities uh, that were missed by me early on at a, at a, at a greater level uh, because I could have been making a much greater uh, impact beyond my own classroom as a teacher and having that extend uh, to other classrooms and, and for the you know, school and district wide had I approached that much differently early on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is a beautiful segue into our next question <laughs> because the next question is about change and balancing that with a sense of urgency. So earlier this year, Sarah and I had a conversation with one Teddy <laughs> Bean Pomeroy um, where she said, um, I'm just so tired of racism, right? And the theme of this <laughs> summit is that liberation can't wait, right? Because he's so tired. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a sense of urgency that has had, um, but Trevor, you just named many things around why that change can be slow. So as leaders and as edu educators and those who have been teachers, what is it like to balance that sense of urgency with the slow process of change? You're trying to change a, an entire monopoly, right, called public education. And people are already in power and they're not gonna let go of that power um, then you also have um, within our own within our own cultures, you have difference of opinion, and so it's really hard to pull everybody together within our own and individual cultures and across cultures to fight together to change the system. Right. So we re and and we don't have numbers in that space either. Right. We don't have numbers in the classroom. We don't have numbers in administration. Okay. Um, it's just like any corporation, right? You, you, when you don't have okay. numbers, it's hard to move people. Um, it's hard to move. Right? Some people don't want to change. Uh, can you, can you mute, mute those people? I'm Thank trying. You. I'm trying. Thank you. <laughs> Some people don't want to change because they want to hold on to their, their jobs, right? And so, um, as um, Teddy was talking on, on the last question, I was thinking about. Um, how hard it's going to be for you um, teachers, particularly those of you in your first three years, to move the needle within your own class, your own school, right? Mm -hmm. You're just starting in this industry. You're probably one of maybe maximum five teachers of color. You're coming in with great ideas. Nobody wants to hear those ideas. Um, some people want to fight against those ideas. That's why you have the Martinez Fellowship. That's why you have the mm -hmm. Network for Edward. So we can start to bring all of you together to fight with you, right? It's, it's not a battle that you can fight on your own. Um, and change in general is just hard. Look, change, people don't like change. No, there, I can't even, out of the, how many people on here? 73 people on here. There's not a one of you that will say that you like change. It doesn't matter if it's change for good or change for bad. Nobody <laughs> likes change. Right. So then you've got that going on because then it's what's changed for me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, is it going to benefit me? Is it going to if it benefits me, is it going to hurt other people? You know, so we can't look at change as just this thing, but we have to look at what are the things we want to change? How do we want to mm -hmm. change? Who do we need to be involved, et cetera? 
one thing at a time, one big lever at a time, and then just mm -hmm. stay on it. Yeah, and to, to add on to that, the power of numbers is so huge. Um, being able to analyze your situation in the construct that we might exist in, and then being able to uh, strategize, organize, and mobilize. I mean, we're essentially really trying to redefine and liberate um, our children and who we are as educators. Um, and as we know, liberation is synonymous with freedom. And it brings me to a quote from Toni Morrison says, saying that the, the function of free freedom is freeing someone else. And so um, that is something that I believe that if we can do together, um, we can make uh, long lasting change at a pace that's faster than it has been in the, in the past. Um, and I think having the long, the kind of the long goal uh, in mind um, makes those smaller changes that we might be uncomfortable with easier to digest. Um, and it, but we've been, we've endured so much change and discomfort that we're, we're conditioned in a way to where we're, we're built to last. We're built to, to make these changes. Um, and it's, it, it kind of goes back to what was said about being patient enough to not um, make the folks in power uncomfortable. Uh, I think uh, we're, in a, we're in a time that's unique, that's provided opportunities for us to where um, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't have to um, acquiesce to the, the comfort of the folks in power. And so um, power numbers is, is something to keep in mind, but um, I think now is the time. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I think I, I agree with you, um, I, and and I, I think I like change in some ways. Uh, I'm going to go against against the grain here, maybe because I'm old and I don't care anymore. But um, it, it's it's to me one of the most valuable things I've learned is getting to learn the system, to know the system, and to know how the game is played without forgetting that it's a game, mm -hmm. not getting sucked into it, because you've yeah. got to know how the game is played in order to subvert it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so taking a couple of years to sit back and observe and read mm -hmm. as much as you can and, mm -hmm. and, and, and talk to people and share strategy with people is, mm -hmm. is not losing time. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's actually building your war chest and um, your tool chest to take it down because you've got, you've got to know, well, if this can happen, what can I do here? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, it, it's, it is discouraging in the beginning, but you, you'll learn as long as you don't buy into it that, you know, it, it can, and history will tell us, it can come down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And Teddy, that um, reference to the game and knowing how the game is played reminds me of that classic um, cartoon image of equality, equity, liberation. And what you notice, though, if you look at it from from a symbolic standpoint, you'll notice that those kids are still standing watching. Mm -hmm. So is that true liberation? And so right. um, we want to get those kids into the game playing, making those decisions, being the umpire. And so what does that look like? I think it looks like revolutionizing uh, education. Um, 
dismantling the standardized tests um, and looking at education holistic and more um, enriching way because there are so many different ways to to play the game but we've got to understand how how it's played and who who is at bat right and who is who is calling the shots and we want to be able to um, be there and 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 play ourselves so that's something that um, I was reminded of by Teddy's comment. And in the meantime, use your butter knife to pry that little crack a little bit wider. Uh -huh. <laughs> Before we jump to the next question, anybody want to argue like, no, don't use, don't pry. We're not waiting. We're just charging ahead and we're making change. No? Okay. <laughs> I will say this, you'll be there by yourself. <laughs> wow. Right? I mean, you think about, no, think about, um, what was the movement? Um, uh, the Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street. Occupy. Where are they at? <laughs> where are they at? They made a yeah. big old noise. And, you know, one would argue that Black Lives Matter petered out for a while until, um, you know, recent incidents. Then they pick back up again. It's like you can't have these movements with a few people going out hitting hashtags and all that like it it really takes a concerted long concerted effort and then there's a big push and then it flattens and then there's another mm -hmm. big push and then it flattens the thing that's common is that they're the same set of people in all those in, in those milestones right bringing on new people but there's that same set of leadership and everybody's moving in the same direction now you got you know people all over the place claiming to focus on Black Lives Matter, and they're not. <laughs> they're not. Uh -uh. And so now you have these individual efforts, right? So, so yeah, we can go fast. Go <laughs> fast. Go alone. Go fast. Yeah. yeah. Go far. Go together. I've been around the block for sixty-three years, so I, you know, been there, seen it all. But you know, just because it, it, I mean, I hate, it hate to sound like it's incremental because sometimes little things can make material good, material changes. Yeah. They can. Um, but, you know, uh, the other thing I, I want to speak out against is the whole idea of access because mm -hmm. access, I, oh my God, I just realized it's in your name. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but you know what? That, that's what it was then. And that's a learning, right? Right, because there are only going to be so many people that they're going to let in the door. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and it's not about access. It's about playing the game, like Jerome, yeah. getting on the field, not watching through the fence. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. well, yeah. You know, Jerome was talking about freedom, uh, the purpose being to free others. I think leadership is in that same vein. Yes. Uh, you have to provide leadership opportunities for others. Uh, what you see in the hiring of, uh, you know, of teachers is you'll have a group of, of, of predominantly white teachers and a white administrator. And the, the belief, I think, if you talk to people, it's if I had the same, you know, if everybody had the same qualifications and we had a black candidate and a white candidate, I would hire the black candidate. And the truth mm -hmm. is that is not what happens. What happens is people hire and look for people that look like them. And so when we have the opportunity to to get into positions of leadership and uh we I, I think we have the responsibility to make sure that we're on uh, reflecting upon what we are then doing to lift others up and yeah. not in a way that places somebody 
that it does not have the qualifications. There are people just like in, in this room, in this virtual room now, uh, the people in attendance, uh, uh, these are the people that will continue to make that change. And if we can lift people up quicker, then mm -hmm. move that rate of speed uh, of change a little bit more quickly. So kind of, you know, maybe not, maybe not running the whole phrase, uh, if you wanna go fast, go alone. If you wanna go far, go together. Mm -hmm. People in together so that we can then continue to make this change and get the flywheel moving in the right, at the right momentum so that it then carries on uh, even in our absence. So that change continues to happen. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, I also think it's incumbent upon us when we get to that point where we can bring others along with us mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is that we start to question the idea of qualifications. Mm -hmm. And so if I have a candidate, if I have a, an applicant of color who I know is going to bring stuff to the classroom that a white candidate who maybe has a higher GPA mm -hmm. or has, uh, or, you know, or back before the West B was not, um, was wired. It was like, okay, so the graduate degree doesn't matter to you. You have to have this person pass a basic skills test. Are you kidding me? Well, okay, I'll go out and find somebody who can tutor her to get the basic skills mm -hmm. test. Um, so we also have to question why the qualifications are there and what the qualifications really mean and think about what the qualities are that folks will bring to our kids yeah. um, with their experiences and their abilities to relate mm -hmm. to and to understand our kids. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's another barrier that was set up for our teachers, you know, uh, or teacher candidates. Yeah, I'm trying um, to work on the TPA now, but. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's like, you know, there are a lot of people who pass the test. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that they can teach kids. Mm -hmm. that is, for mm -hmm. some reason, that's not even part of the equation. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of people that have degrees, but it doesn't mean they're smart. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean they can get stuff done. You know, in the tech sector, I work with a lot of people who stayed in school, got their master's, their PhD, and they come out and they don't even know how to act in the real world because they never solved the problem in the real world. It wasn't set up for them perfectly to, um, to execute on, mm -hmm. right? And then on top of that, they have the personality of a doorknob. They can't talk to people. You know, so it's that thing of there's more to what you can do in whatever your field is than your resume mm -hmm. and your test score. You know, here we go with the test scores again, right? You got to be a good student. You got to test. You got it before you can be a teacher. You know, there are a lot of really bad teachers that probably did well on the Westie and all the other tests that they have to do, right? Probably had 4.0 GPAs in college but can't teach their way out of a paper bag. And then you have all these other people who have great relationships with all kinds of kids and can get a point across. Well, I mean, in today's age, I can learn a lot of stuff mm -hmm. um, on my own and convey it to children, mm -hmm. right? And then have them learn how to learn on their own. And now we got a vibrant community that's learning together. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not afraid to say I don't know something. I can tell you how I'm gonna look it up and let's all just try to figure it out together. That's learning not a teacher standing up as the vessel of all information that's pouring that information into other vessels. And if we're gonna fight a battle, that might be another battle to fight. I know people are talking about getting rid of the tests and get folks in the, in the classroom, 
but the why of it is what we have to lift up a little more. Mm -hmm. right? We have to advocate more on the why, mm -hmm. because otherwise the people who are in power are going to say, well, you know, we're lowering the bar and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's, yeah, Ooh, don't get me started. Oh, I know, I know. We're not lowering the bar. We are adding qualifications mm -hmm. to the job description. Yeah. And, and some of these other folks just don't make it. Yeah, and I think, too, the, the fact that we can have teachers who excel at the, um, uh, the, the Westie or Westie and they have a high um, GPA but can't teach their way out of a paper bag is reflective of how uh, constricting this colonized learning meritocracy mindset is. Um, we, you know, I think it's important to always ask those questions that Teddy mentioned um, especially when we're fighting this battle and um, when carrying people along with us, recognizing who's really going to do the work with us. You know, we, we see these in these movements, we have folks who call themselves allies, but it might be a little more performative than anything else. Um, we have uh, teachers who can throw out um, all of the buzzwords with regard to culturally competent um, equity but when it comes, when the rubber meets the road, they're stuck. And so, you know, I think it's work that we do. We've probably done way too much work, but still being optimistically cautious or cautiously optimistic to recognize, you know, uh, that if we're going to do this work and if we're going to do it efficiently, uh, recognize who we're, who we're bringing up and who, who we're working with, because we obviously cannot do this work alone. We need some legitimate allies and, you know, I was having a conversation with a, a fellow teacher who called themselves an ally, and I, I, I paused for a second. And I don't think you have that privilege to do that. You've got to do the work, and you've got to be with us. And we might have, we might appoint you that, but uh, you can't just all of a sudden be an ally because you've, you know, posted something on social media or you've mm -hmm. um, been able to, um, you know, put a mural up in your school. You know, it's it's more than that. And so I think that. Um, we there's work to be done but I mean we're just in an opportunity where we can do it but um, mm -hmm. we have time to be cognizant and to be um, reflective of who's on the team you know and um, moving forward with them instead of performative folks who don't necessarily understand the depth and uh, seriousness of the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. I recently heard, I know this is a new thing, I'm sorry I'm talking too much, but I, you, you gave me a microphone. Um, <laughs> ally to accomplice. And it, it, it took me a bit, you know, maybe shake my head a little bit, but accomplice, that helps me because accomplice means I'm going to look for what you've done for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as Janet would say, what have you done for me lately? You know, um, <laughs> you know, accomplice means I'm going to hold you to some action that you have taken mm -hmm. to help me, not just the poster on your classroom wall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I like that. I like the accomplices. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. looking for accomplices. Raydell, we can't hear you. I can't hear you. Maybe somebody else can hear you. You did me. How dare you? Sorry, tried to silence me, y'all. Someone, <laughs> no, 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 no. Someone muted Ooh. me. And how dare they? 
<laughs> what I was saying was the important thing I'm taking away from what all of you have just said is that sometimes you don't be tired. You take a break, you think about where you are, you think about who it is that you're working with. Are they are they why you are tired? Mm. You need a chance kind of in a different way and be uh, giving your energy to someone else or to some other effort, um, but then to keep going. Yes. So thank you all for that. Uh, we're going to do two more questions. Two more questions. So here we are in the home stretch. This next question is um, thinking about what you know about the fellowship, the purpose of the fellowship, what the fellowship aims to do. Trisha's really big goals that she put on us <laughs> for scaling the fellowship. Um, if what could it mean to have um, the Martinez Fellowship Program and be really grounded in this idea of liberation pedagogy and doing it in practice and fellows, um, you know, have got it and are doing it well and are working with peers and we're working with, um, you know, in school environments and with students to do this. Like we're really committed to it and we're doing it. That's happening in the fellowship. Um, what, 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 what would that mean for education in Washington State and outcomes for students in Washington State? We are listening. You know, when you when I look listen to that question again, I think about when Tafford started, um, had these big ideas about changing uh, the tech industry, right? That we were gonna flood the pipeline with all of these highly qualified students of color so companies could never say no, right? So when I think about your question, even though our goal is 2,400 new uh, teachers of color into Washington State schools, we have 295 school districts. So if we had critical mass in a couple of them, we would completely change those districts. We would completely change how they treat students, completely change how they assess, how they educate, how they do everything with students and would be an amazing example of what education really should be like, right? Mm -hmm. But we gotta figure out how do we do that? How do we concentrate on East of the Mountains? How do we concentrate here in King and Pierce County? Um, you know, how do we concentrate up by Bellingham and in pockets where we have students of color, majority students of color? So if we can get critical mass of Martinez Fellows grounded in the liberation pedagogy in the key places where most black and brown kids and poor kids, regardless of race, are, man, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, we'd be kicking some ass. Mm -hmm. it, it leads me back to the, the importance of taking a critical lens to the schools in our district, analyzing as a cohort, strategizing, organizing, and mobilizing. Like those, those for me are um, foundational um, to work toward progress. Um, and I think that the, the the origins of the cohort itself already has. Um, a diverse group of individuals who represent uh, students who are furthest away from social and educational justice. And so there's this um, initial desire and passion to, to make change. And so 
I think that um, as we talk about, you know, specifically dismantling colonized education, um, there's a, a force that's already existing and all it needs to do is take that, that step to make these changes. And with all that's been going on in the pandemic and, you know, certain districts and states have already, like we mentioned, um, gotten rid of uh, standardized tests like overnight um, that I think uh, leads um, or lends itself to an opportunity to really um, do this work and question a lot of the antiquated and oppressive um, strategies that schools are still using. I think you lost my I'll go ahead and uh, jump in now. Um, I appreciate you know Trish Trish talking about critical mass, and I I I guess I'm having a interesting time recognizing that I'm at this point in my career where I'm I'm in a position where change can happen and happen more quickly than at other times in my career, and I think it's been it's been frustrating for me having been on the, both the east side of the state, but also uh, most recently the, recently the Seattle area, and see the lip service that is paid to change, um, you know, to talk about how, uh, you know, we're a district that wants to promote uh, people of color into positions of leadership, and then actually know the numbers and have seen uh, the recruitment efforts or lack thereof and excuses uh, uh, when I was in recruitment on the west side <clears throat> of the state, and so you know now being in this in in this situation where I'm at, I've I've been uh, I came in as a superintendent, and over the course of the first year, uh, turned over my entire cabinet, and my cabinet um, we have uh, over half of the people are people of color, very well qualified, uh, will make and are making a tremendous difference. And so my point is just the, the leadership does matter. The leadership uh, that we see on this panel, the leadership that, that Trish is engaged in, uh, in, in her life and uh, Teddy and uh, others, uh, the, the work that happens. And we, we have to be able to develop that. It goes back to that leadership piece that I said about lifting others up. If you can get that critical mass that Trish mentioned, then the changes start coming more and more quickly. We're a district of, of 16,000 students. And when I walked in the door here, we had out of 52 principals, one, uh, one black woman as an assistant principal at an alternative school. That's it? That was it, that, is, that was it. Where a year later, a year later, and I have now I've hired uh, uh, a, a principal, a black woman who'll be a principal at one of our elementaries, and a black man coming in in an executive director's uh, position from a principalship uh, most recently, and I look at the numbers, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, you know, uh, we're you know we've 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 tripled what we had. But that I mean, when you're at nothing, mm -hmm. uh, close to nothing, that is not something that I put on the front page of what we do. And right. yet, you know, I, I'm telling you that uh, the, the the door is open in Yakima. The the mm -hmm. opportunity that I have in my position is not lost on me. And knowing that we are uh, a, a, a partner to those who, who want to make a change with people that look like you, um, because we need, we need, and I'm not doing this as a recruitment effort, honestly, I'm not. I think in education, 
No, no, I, I just realized it was sounding like that. <laughs> That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh-huh. <laughs> we need teachers to be able to see themselves in their students, just like we have students that need to see themselves in the faces of their teachers. And so yeah. I'm, I'm just so thrilled about the work that, uh, you know, through the Martinez uh, Fellowship. And, you know, I, I'm in, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong learner myself and I'm going on way too long, but, you know, being involved currently uh, uh, going through a program, uh, uh, the doctoral program at University of Washington, which is very well focused, the L4L program on educators of color and knowing that in my cohort of 35, and I, I got to tell you, out of that cohort of 35, I am not even in the, probably the top three or four. I'm, 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 on, the bo- I'm on the bottom of the intelligence level spectrum and change spectrum of those individuals. And to see my colleagues and know the power that they have and just knowing that that opportunity needs to be there for them is something that has given me great hope to know the change that is out there once we get into positions where we can move more rapidly. So not only is it critical for you to go into that classroom setting and and not only influence the classroom, but influence your colleagues around you, uh, knowing that you're going to be disappointed with uh, probably the rate of change or the acceptance, but uh, you're fighting that fight. It's just as critical for you to continue and to get into the positions of leadership that then create the possibilities for others, because we'll never get that critical mass uh, that Trish is talking about, unless we have those doors that continue to open up uh, for for other people, for other people that that, that mm-hmm. look us. So I'm I'm excited about uh, the goal that uh, uh, that you have in the in the organization, and being a part of that uh, is phenomenal because you you will make those changes, and and if we can do that in a few districts and just show what it means, I mean that that is something that uh, that is 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 exciting to me because I should not be able to count the number of black female superintendents on, I shouldn't be able to count that. Out of nine, 295 districts in the state, mm-hmm. uh, I know that you know, there are four Native American superintendents. I can name uh, all of the, the, the black African American uh, superintendents in the state, and I can't do that for any mm-hmm. other demographic. And that's, that's not how it should be. Yeah. Well, I, I think Yakima sounds like a great place for Trisha. Yes. Uh, critical mass. Come on now. <laughs> Send me, send me some of your your your, uh, your your students with bachelors because that's that's yeah. how I see my job at UW is to change what teacher preparation looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know we are at fifty percent plus students of color. We've been there for four years, and I'm not going to drop below that. It is that's that's my goal. You know we we got to change this thing. And um, so, right. send the folks from the valley, and I promise to send them back. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. And to the point made earlier about again that critical mass, right? On this panel, we have a school leader, we have a leader of a teacher preparation program, we have a leader of a district, and we have a leader of an education nonprofit that is committed to eliminating race-based disparities in education, right? Like. I didn't really think about that when we were putting this together, but it really is amazing that for people that are on this panel, because it's going to take leadership from all of those places Mm -hmm. that we're talking about. Yeah, there are no accidents right now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so last question. Last question. I'm going to give some instructions to this question that I feel like are probably going to be ignored, but this is the question anyway. 
What is your one sentence message, one sentence message to our newest fellows about the journey that they are about to embark on? And that is for everyone. Mm. I'm saying it, but you know, whatever happens, happens. <laughs> oh, it's, that's easy for me. You are about to do the most important job that ever existed on the planet. I'll add on to that and say, know your core values, practice your core values, know what you stand for and what you won't stand for. Oof. This is gonna be a run on sentence. I'll apologize in advance. Um, <laughs> but this is the most important job in the world. Um, I'd encourage you to get involved in the community uh, not just at your school. It, it gives you uh, uh, an understanding of perspective. Um, stay active. Also, never forget why you go into education. Um, you'll run up against mandates, policies that'll ebb and flow, disappear and reappear. Um, and then to end, just continue to stay curious. Um, if you are really in this work, this is the hardest you will ever work. Mm -hmm. And this is the hardest you will ever love. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's true. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> me. So in my little like script, right? Cause we, we are nerds and we plan a lot, right? So we, we have this almost down to the T. I wrote, wow, in all caps, right? But I don't even need to reference that because I just love this stacked panel and the wisdom that they're providing. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Now we're gonna, we wanna share you guys, obviously with the people who are listening. So we wanna open up the chat to questions. Mm -hmm. Yes. Can I just say real quick, I have a hard stop at 4.30. Yes. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the extra time. Yes, we appreciate it. Yeah. So I see a question in the chat. I'm going to voice it out loud. It says, where's the best university to get admin credentials from? Mm. A loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> you got one YouTube person on this panel. Uh -huh. What am I going to say? <laughs> Yeah, I would back that up. I, I've heard good things about the University of Washington as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a few good Get out. products <laughs> from there. <laughs> but the Seattle U and SPU also have programs. You know, I think mm -hmm. a good question to ask is probably like, what what do you want coming out of your admin program to mm -hmm. help you decide? Um, which one is the best for you? Because uh, some of them are like awful, but you know, you know, they're pretty good. Trevor, do you see that question for you at the bottom in the chat? Uh, yeah, I do see that. What initial steps do we need as educators need to take to dismantle standardized testing? Um, I think as educators, the work that you can do uh, is from within at the grassroots level, especially 
engaging, uh, continuing to engage with your, uh, uh, your own district teachers, your union, gain capacity that way. Uh, that battle does, uh, does have to be fought on multiple fronts though. And I can tell you that, uh, uh, that I, I so again appreciate the comment, uh, just the, the wisdom in Trish in asking that question of me in that position now to think of why, why would we wait any longer? The cast has been laid now uh, the change is happening right now. Let's let's make a move on it. So, um, I would just say, you know, continue to voice, express your voice, and uh, and build upon that momentum so that uh, our legislators know that we're serious about this change. I will add real quick that um, Superintendent Rechdahl is bringing back the test for next year, and I think if we get enough people to say no, we don't need it and is not uh, required from the feds, uh, we can get rid of it for next year too, which would give time to plan um, for what does it look like for year three of no tests, right? So then there would be no tests in year three. I, and I would add too, um, educate yourself about opt-out options. Mm -hmm. uh, because you're working in a classroom with a group of kids and you also, that means you have access to parents who need that information. Mm -hmm. We need to know what the consequences are, what, the, what the, the steps are, and how they can, that's another level of grassroots, to uh, opt out, you know, they have their child opt out. Right now it's pretty much, um, it's more privileged parents who do that. And mm -hmm. we need to know why and so you it's your responsibility to fully inform the parents of what all the options are. Mm -hmm. I would also add um, understand your district's strategic plan. Um, a lot of times they are designed to support students furthest away from educational justice but how however um, still get behind standardized tests which is um, flying in the face of the their strategic, I'm sorry, strategic plans. And so um, understand policy, understand what the district's goals are and um, highlight contradictions within those goals to where you can um, uh, appropriately and effectively start to dismantle uh, some of these ma mandates. Mm -hmm. Uh, a related question that someone asked earlier was, how can teachers be change agents in terms of standardized testing and assessments without getting in trouble from principals and districts? Yes. That, that kind of reminds me of the great, late great John Lewis. That sounds like good trouble to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just always tell my students that the three most powerful words in education are some people think. Mm -hmm. And after that, you're okay most of the time. Yeah. Um, because you're not advocating, you are just informing. Mm -hmm. Observation. Yes. Uh, Trevor Green versus Tech Friendly. Considered <laughs> information in the chat. Thank you. Yes. Trish, we have a question that's directed at you. Yeah, I see it. Okay. I saw it when it came up. Um, so, uh, yeah, Seattle is a big district for us. Seattle has a history of inequity. Um, I moved here in 85. It hasn't 
anything, it's gotten worse. Um, so um, right now, our big focus is getting Washington Middle School right. Uh, we are starting with sixth grade this year, and then we'll add a grade each year. And once we have the whole school to ourselves in the standby tap model, I think we'll be able to start to change uh, the system overall. We're also um, next year going to talk to the district about bringing standby tap to the three feeder elementary schools so we can have a full K through eight using our model and showing how um, interdisciplinary project-based learning can help. Uh, you know, we can't single-handedly in one school try to dismantle the, the state test. And if you know the history of Washington Middle School, we have a lot of highly capable families whose entire life is, is invested in their kids being in a highly capable program. Um, so there would be a huge fight in terms of getting rid of the test. But one of our biggest fights, I think, or biggest battles or uh, things to get across is that there are multiple ways to teach children, children who have multiple abil abilities and teaching them together and teaching them to standard and not worried about the state test. They still have to take the state test just like our other six schools do, but we don't focus on that. What we focus, is, focus on are all the critical things that kids need to know, problem solving, ideation, communication, um, obviously their, uh, their core content and meeting the standards. What's different is that we show multiple ways that kids can meet standards. And um, that's the thing that we want to push across, multiple measures of achievement um, without sitting kids down with a paper test. So that's our first step. And then once we get to that, I think what will happen is folks will start to see that this model really works, um, that kids are happier in it. Because if you don't have kids that are happy in school, they're not going to learn a damn thing. Um, but the kids are happier in it and they're, want, they're engaged. And we've already seen that in our Junior Husky Summer uh, Academy, where um, I think we were close to 100% engagement uh, with 100 students, uh, incoming sixth graders. And I don't think there's a single summer program that could, could say that. And kids learn programming, they learn um, financial management, and um, program financial management, Oh, and they got these little STEM kits that they put some things together so they got a chance to, to work with their hands. Yeah. I'm going to just jump in and say maybe, because um, I know a lot, of, a lot of folks who are just starting out as teachers don't know a world without standardized testing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's the whole idea of freedom dreaming. What could you dream if your school didn't have to do that? Mm -hmm. And about what that could look like. And ask people who have taught in other ways or who grew up in other, in other times, what that looks like. You know, do not mm -hmm. believe the hype that this is about um, accountability. It is not about accountability. It is about, in my personal opinion, it is about information control. Yeah. Because the best way that you can control what kids learn is to place a high degree of um, 
value, a measure of very, very discrete things. Yes. So only measuring math and literacy, guess mm -hmm. what gets taught most places? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, that's what gets taught. So you have folks who don't understand how the government runs mm -hmm. uh, because social studies is, is not even discussed at the elementary right. school. Mm -hmm. uh, so and barely science. Mm -hmm. Barely science. Mm -hmm. um, you know, don't, don't be fooled. This is not about accountability. This is actually, I think, about mm -hmm. controlling the amount of information poor kids get because mm -hmm. these mm -hmm. don't apply to rich kids. They don't apply mm -hmm. to kids in private schools. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, <laughs> yes, we all know. <laughs> um, I know that we could stay here all day if we could just steal Teddy, Trevor, Jerome's, and Trisha's time, but um, I want to honor their time. They already stayed a little bit later, and they have been wonderful humans to do so. Um, but seriously, you guys, I've noticed in the chat, and you guys' vulnerability and like communicating and engaging that way, like how nourished are we? Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I want to say a big thank you to our guests for joining us on our first episode of the podcast. Thank you so awesome. much for your wisdom and your brain sparkle. Um, what you guys had talked about in terms of the solidarity and doing the work um, and sustaining in the work really resonated because, especially in this topic of the podcast today, because I do feel like a liberated fellowship is one that stands shoulder to shoulder in solidarity in this, in this movement towards progress, right? Um, and we are really honored to have you guys. Oh, <laughs> brain sparkle. Yes. <laughs> um, we hope that this was nourishing for you all as well who are watching. Um, we can't quite see you, um, but we know that you are living and uh, we hope that you hop in uh, tomorrow, not the same time, not the same time and not the same place because we're going to figure out some of those logistics. Um, and we're really excited because tomorrow we have two school leaders and a community activist organizer who will be joining us to talk about what dismantling racist education systems looks like on the ground every day. And I think I'm just going to leave you with the note that, you know, be sure to go out and do something today that feeds you on your journey, but at the very least, go eat something that tastes really, really good. Uh, yeah. Can I ask one thing? Yes, of course. Can I ask everybody that, um, who feels comfortable to turn on your video? Because um, I want to see all these beautiful black and brown faces. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, wow. I just got chills. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's three screens worth. Yes. Uh, oh my God. Yes. Thank you all. That's awesome. That see, that's what I'm talking about. That's right. That's right. Y'all see each other? Yes. Yeah, I see you. This is a cage. Yes. This is a person Yes. I love it. Thank you for tuning in. Be sure to do something today that feeds you on your journey, but at the very least, make sure that you eat something tasty and tag us on Instagram, feeding your own journey. We are N-W-E-W underscore Taff.